Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hammer and Umpire podcast. As always, I'm your host, Kevin Weber. I've got a few segments for you today that I hope you will enjoy. I'm going to um, talk about an email that uh, Robert Fobian sent in to me about some two-man mechanics. He's a newer umpire and um, was not able to get through all of his uh, training that that they do in his area, and he had a question for me, so I'm going to answer that for him, and, um, you know, if you guys have some different opinions, feel free to to let me know about it, but uh, we're talking about a banger at second base, like on a double in particular. Also, and talk about the strike zone. Strike zones always were really important, of course. It's uh, the most important thing we do as an umpire is uh, calling balls and strikes and, and trying to get that right. Um, it's what makes some umpires better than others, for sure. So some interesting articles out there about that, and one by John Bible caught my attention. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And then I, I got a little bit different take today on... Um, my umpire spotlight. I'm going to kind of do a big general umpire spotlight on umpires in the Negro leagues, the old Negro leagues from the um, early to you know mid 1900s. So that's what I've got in store for you. Hopefully, um, maybe some of you have got some umpiring in already. Some of you, hopefully, sometime soon. I haven't yet. Um, I'm looking for that to happen. Hopefully, in the next couple weeks. Um, but until then. Sit back and listen to another episode of the Hammer and Umpire Podcast. In a recent article for Referee Magazine, uh, John Bible wrote about um, strike zone. And having a large strike zone, having a, a pitcher-friendly strike zone, which is something I strive to do. I think all of us at, at one time or another have gotten a little tight during a game in a strike zone, maybe not uh, getting some pitches that we could get. And um, usually that leads to, to bad things. Um, you want to be consistent, of course, whatever strike zone you're calling. But having a little bit uh, wider or, you know, particularly wider strike zone and, um, you know, making sure you're getting pitches, you know, those low pitches you can get. And the top of the strike zone for whatever level you're working is really important. I'm not talking about ridiculous stuff, you know, three, four inches outside or something or way high, or way low. But you've got to get the pitches that you can. And he, he mentions in the article about working a, a college game one time that took three and a half hours because the umpire had this super small strike zone that, you know, everybody was getting at him for. And then after he got back in the locker room, the guy was, you know, they were doing their post game, and he's like, "Yeah, I think I only missed, you know, one or two pitches." And then <laughs> I guess Bible he couldn't contain himself anymore, and he was like, "Yeah, one or two pitches per batter." <laughs> so that, that that's a interesting conversation there. But uh, anyway, it, the whole point of it got me thinking too. When we, we all start getting back on the on the baseball field, particularly calling balls and strikes. I know a few of you out there have had the opportunity to do that, and that's great. I'd love to hear how it's gone for you. Um, but uh, if you're, you know, especially if we're doing it our regular old way, you know, in the back of a catcher, I think that some of us, you know, we're a little out of sorts, and we, you know, are, are, we have no rhythm right now because we haven't been doing this. Um, but to me, it's kind of like driving a car. You know, even if you haven't driven a car for a couple months, you hop in the car, you can drive that car. 
and umpiring and calling balls and strikes is a little bit like that too. But my suggestion, and something I'm going to try to do, is making sure I get all the strikes I can. I try to do that anyway, all right? But I'm going to be very conscious of that uh, when I get back on the baseball field. I I hope that uh, any partner I work with is going to do the same thing, and I'm going to do that for them and, um, you know, get the, the kids swinging and do what we can. Now, some of us, maybe for the first time ever, or for the first time in a long time, I know that would be the case for me, might be calling some balls and strikes um, behind the mound, especially for the more youth games, right? And so that is very strange and something we haven't done. But if that is the case, um, and you have to do that, make sure you get every strike you can there too. You, you have a pretty good look at it, especially when you're right behind the pitcher's mound. I mean, when we're in B or C, we can see pitches pretty well. I mean, there's a few times where your angle is maybe not the best, but you got a pretty good idea of it's a ball or a strike and um, how your partner's doing. I mean, that's why that's why we ask each other that, um, you know, what do you think my strike's on? Because we know they got a decent view out there. We've all been there. So um, just make sure you get what you can. Don't worry about what, um, you know, what a batter might be thinking. Actually, in some ways, it might be easier. You know, the batter is, uh, you know, 70 feet away, basically. And uh, if he doesn't like a call... <laughs> It's too bad. You can just, you know, ring him up out there or something, and he's going to walk back. You you won't hear what he said, I guess, you know, because he's walking back to the dugout. So um, do what you can do and uh, make sure you get all the strikes that you can. So just some thoughts. Um, good article. You know, John Bible always writes great articles. I've, I've spotlighted him on the Empire Spotlight a, a while back there, so you can check that out. And if you just Google John Bible, um, there will be all kinds of stuff that has popped up. He's written Tons of articles for Referee Magazine and other publications, and a very successful uh, collegiate umpire, and uh, and did a little some pro ball too. Um, so great resource, you know, more old school kind of guy, but um, he seems to have a, a touch on the way modern umpiring is as well, and um, just very good common sense on a lot of things and how you should handle things. So check out John Bible if you have not done so, and um, he definitely will help you to. Uh, improve your umpire philosophy and the way that you go about things and also just you know general mechanics and other things that you might be doing as far as how you work on the bases um, how you call balls and strikes uh, how you handle players and coaches and other game management things he's got a lot of really good stuff out there I got an email from Robert Fobian, and um, that's always a great thing to get an email. Uh, any of you out there, feel free to send me an email at spinalfusion06 at yahoo.com. It's in the show notes as well. Or reach out to me on Facebook at The Hammer Podcast, on Twitter at Kevin R. Weber, and um, I'll do what I can to uh, get back with you on whatever it is that you've got on your mind. Or if you just want to make some comment about something, and, and that's all that's all you got, that's fine too. But uh, anyway, I had mentioned uh, Robert on the podcast because he had a question last week, and, and he was pleased with that. And he asked uh, for a future episode, um, he was hoping that I would discuss and, and recommend uh, mechanics for uh, the base umpire covering a banger tag play at second base on a double to the outfield with the bases empty in two-man system. He said he had three more on-field clinics 
to go this spring when the COVID shutdown hit and he didn't get a chance to cover this and his, um, you know, umpire clinics. And he's a newer umpire. So he said, um, obviously from the A position, you are busting to the mound, executing an open pivot to make sure the batter touches the bag and for any obstruction interference. And as the runner makes his turn to second, you are then headed into the cutout at second base to make your call. But where do you set up for this call to avoid getting flatlined on your angle? What is your thought process? And what do you need to do in this situation to give yourself the best angle and distance to make the correct call? Well, first, thanks for the question and comments, Robert. Appreciate that. I have some experience working two-man since a majority of my games that I've worked in my whole career, I guess, but definitely each season are still in two-man. So I definitely have an opinion on this. Uh, I know that there are some listeners I have that are more experienced umpires than I am, and uh, maybe they've been to pro school, and they've done other things, so they've been taught a certain way. But the, the good thing is, is, I've been taught by a lot of those kind of guys. So what I'm going to tell you um, is based on, well, experience, but also what I have been taught at the clinics I've gone to, um, the umpires I've talked to, and how they handle these kinds of things. All right. So, yeah, you want to get to a good spot to be able to uh, to make a call on a close play at second base on a, on a close double all right, to the outfield, wherever it might go in the outfield. It doesn't really matter um, to a point. And so on two-man, um, probably the, the ideal location is somewhere around the cutout at second base. All right, that's a good distance. You're going to be away from the play. You're not going to be too on top of it or too far away. You have a pretty good angle there. You can't really work the base when you're in two-man and get to the outside and all this stuff like guys might do in three- and four-man. So you still got to be there because if there's an overthrow or something crazy happens and and the, the runner ends up at third base, you have to be there too. So you need to be inside the diamond, you know, on the infield grass. So keep that in mind. Now you mentioned here, and, and I'm sure people were telling you this, about making the pivot um, you know, the ball's hit and you make the pivot and then you're going to try to get there and you're, you don't want to linger too long to make sure that the guy touches first or that there's interference or obstruction. Yeah, you're trying, it's still your responsibility to check those things, but really it's a quick kind of glance. You also hope that your plate umpire is competent all right. And I know if you're a newer guy, you know, sometimes that's hit and miss at times with who you might be working with and that they're watching too, because really they should be coming out to, um, I mean, I don't know if, you know, this is, this isn't no, with nobody on base. All right. So they should be coming out to, you know, help watch the fly ball. It could be in their area or not, but obviously if you're cutting in and you're not going out the right, it's their fly ball. So they're looking at that. Once they see a catch, no catch, they should be, you know, just taking a glance at the runner and um, what's happening around first base to potentially help you if, if something were to come about there, you know, and that's something you can pregame. Anyway, pivoting is not the best thing. It is the the old way things were taught. It's still, I believe, uh, taught in 
minor league ball, you know, in, in the umpire camps and, you know, the pro schools. I could be correct on that. Feel free to correct me if somebody knows differently. I, I probably should ask Matt Wachowski if that's the case. And they want you to do that. When I go to, like, the Class A Whitecaps games here, the Tigers Class A organization, they all do the pivot. And they get graded on that. If you don't do it, I think you get marked down and you got to do that. It's really hard on your knees and your and your um, inner legs, particularly, like, your, you know, your groin area. It can get groin pulls, and it's tough on your knees. So now it is acceptable, I know, in collegiate ball on down and they don't mark you down if you you know as you come in you know go into the same spot that you might be where you're going to make your pivot toward the mound on the infield grass area to glance over your left shoulder as you're running in to see if you see the the bag touch and you know potentially any interference or obstruction or something like that and then you make your way toward second base to um, get your best angle you can for the banger at second base. It's a lot easier on your knees. I've had two knee surgeries, one on each knee for meniscus tears. Uh, Am I 100% sure? Can I 100% prove that they're from umpiring 100 to 150 games a year for the past, you know, I don't know, almost 10 years now? No, I guess I can't prove it. But, you know, if I weren't umpiring, there's a good chance I don't have to have my knee surgeries, okay? So I think it's from those. And I used to do the pivot all the time, okay? Because that's what everybody said you're supposed to do. So I did it. I had a pretty dang good pivot, man. I didn't pivot there. Well, my knees couldn't really handle it that well. And, um, you know, maybe there were some other extenuating circumstances that weakened up my knees. But that did not help. So... You don't need to do that. That you know, they they put that stuff in from what I've heard from umpiring history to have everybody doing it the same way and have something to grade people on. Can you do the pivot? It's also kind of an athletic thing. You know, are you athletic enough to do it? Um, if you are, they want those kind of guys to move up in professional ball and maybe make it to the major leagues. It's not that important. I mean, if you can see that, that's fine. I've been told by great umpire instructors like like Brent Rice, who now runs the MHSAA, was a AAA umpire and nearly a major league umpire, longtime minor league umpire, still does a lot of bigger college games and things like that, that, you know, you just, you look, that's not your top priority. You look over the shoulder, you see if it looks like he's pretty dang close and you're you're like, yeah, I think you probably got the bag there. That's fine. You're only going to call a play on the appeal, of course, that he missed first base if you are 100% sure. He's got to really miss it, okay? You know, it's got to, you can't be like, well, you know, he probably did, but I don't really know. It looked pretty close. You can't just make that call. It's got to be like, there's no way he got it. When you looked over your shoulder as you were jo- you know, jogging, sprinting, half sprinting in, you're like, no way, man. I'm 100% sure. There's no way he got that base. I can call that. And if this coach wants to come out and argue with me, 
I know I got this right. You can't, you know, because you know you're going to get an argument. So if that coach is coming out and you're thinking in your mind, I'm not really 100% sure on this, you can't call it. So the thing that Brent Rice has always taught in his, um, you know, the clinics that I've seen him in is that, well, I didn't see him not touch first base. Like if somebody asks, you know, let's say you don't call it. The coach comes out, hey, man, didn't he miss first base? Well, I didn't see him not touch it because, you know, you didn't, right? And then, you know, it's kind of this wording thing kind of confuses them and usually they they go away, hopefully, right? So that's not your priority. Your priority is to get yourself to somewhere around the cutout or somewhere in a good spot and be set and be able to make the right call, your safe out call, all right? So you have to anticipate on these. You know, you know the kind, you know, you can see the kind of batter it is if the guy might be faster or slower. You know the kind of level you're working if they are able to get it to second base in a reasonable time and maybe make a play there. I mean, not that you know everybody the outfielder's arms or something, but you have a clue about how good a defense this team might have. And um you can kind of get a, a grip on that. So you have to you know, they, I know they talk about like, you don't want to be too quick on things, right? But you do have to anticipate and have a little baseball sense and know this, this feels like a banger at second. So boom, you're, you're busting ahead and you're taking the shortcut there. So you don't have to be faster than the kids now. And I know I'm not anymore. That's for sure. So you have to like, look over your shoulder maybe you see it well or not hopefully you do if if you don't that's not your main thing you bust in you get set you see where the throw's coming see if it's a true throw or not and you might have to adjust that way and then you make your call so you really have to um you know you paused for a second to read the play and as you read it you have to know i got to get my butt over down to second base here man because this is going to be potentially close if they make a decent throw you know, sometimes you get you busted down there and you're set. And if they made a good throw, it would have been close, you know, banger. But, you know, the kid freaking chucks it into the ground or something and it's, there's no close play at all. But you look good sitting there, man. You're ready. I mean, that's that's what your job is, right? So that's what I suggest. That you have to read that ball that's hit to the outfield and know that it could be a potential play and get ahead of the play. And not worry so much about interference, obstruction, base touch. Because that is not your top priority. You know, I mean, if you are looking up the guy's rear end as you're running down towards second base and you're running toward the cutout and you're looking behind the, you know, through guys through the plate and you're like, hey, you know, but I tell you what, coach, there was no obstruction or interference at first. And he touched first base. I got that. And they're like, well, that doesn't matter. I mean, the safe out. I mean, that's the most important thing on that play. Not those other things, you know. Because when two on per system, things, you know, things have to be prioritized. And base touches um, is low on the priority list. I mean, we want to get interference on obstruction. But, you know, you're going to see that. If the kid falls down or he gets bumped off course, you notice those by looking over your shoulder pretty well. You can get that um, pretty good. Um, but base touches, man, when you're running, man, that's, that's tough. It's got to be obvious, like I said. All right. So, Robert, that's my advice and suggestions on dealing with that. I think if you do that, um, 
you will um, do well. I have done that. Um, that's kind of the, the philosophy I have. And I'm usually in a good spot. And um, I feel pretty confident that, you know, I'm, I'm where I need to be so I can be set and make the best call that I can. All right. And if you do that, I think that uh, you'll be pleased with it and it'll work out pretty well for you. I know that part of, you know, your question is like, what's the the best place to take this particular kind of play? And it certainly is the cutout area. And yeah, you can adjust a little bit, you know, left, right, depending on if the throw is coming, you know, from more right center field or left center field or whatever, somewhere like that. But like I said, you can't really work the bag. So you have to, you know, the distance, the cutout distance is pretty good. That's probably six to eight feet. That's probably, you know, what you're looking for for a tag play. Um, you're you're going to have to be on the infield grass side in two men to make that call. Like I said, you can't work the bag. So that's what you, you got to try to get there as quickly as you can once you um, have realized that it is a banger double kind of play. All right, so you got to get there and get yourself set. I mean, when I'm running on those plays, I'm thinking, I got to get there and I got to get set. I got to get set, got to get set. And I'm trying to get to my spot. Do I always get exactly where I want to? You know, you know, maybe I could have been a foot, you know, this way or that way or something. Uh, sometimes that happens, but um, sometimes I just slow down and get myself set, you know, because I want to be set before that ball gets there. All right. You know, while it's, you know, in flight there, I, I got to get myself set. So that's what I look for. Um, hopefully the, that helps you out a little bit. Hopefully you're going to be able to get back on the baseball field and try those things out sometime soon. Let me know how it works. I'm going to take a little bit different angle to this week's umpire spotlight, and I'm going to spotlight the umpires in the old Negro leagues. If you aren't familiar with the Negro leagues, they were the, um, the black baseball players leagues, um, that existed from the, um, early 1900s, um, until a little bit after Jackie Robinson broke down the color barrier in 1947. Obviously, once he did that and um, more African-Americans were allowed to play in the major leagues, then the Negro Leagues naturally kind of fell apart because their best players were gone, right? So if you look, information about you know various aspects of black baseball can be difficult to find, and there are still lots of gaps in the story that needs to be filled in. And none of those gaps are more than the role of umpires and what they did in the Negro Leagues. Few stories in the newspapers ever said much about the umpires uh, beyond their names, unless something happened involving a bad call or a brawl. Um, Some people might be familiar with the name Emmett Ashford, who I spotlighted before as the first black umpire in the Major Leagues. But what about the men who came before him? Um, Who were these guys who toiled in the shadows and never got really any recognition for the difficult job that they were doing on and off the field. Um, Why did the leagues employ black and white umpires? The Negro Leagues did that. Maybe you're not um, familiar with that, but they did. And how much of a difference did it make to have umpires who were white rather than black uh, in the Negro Leagues? Uh, When the Negro National League was created in 1920, One of the most important issues to be figured out was the way umpires would be chosen and paid. Uh, The league president was famous uh, Rube Foster, and he believed that 
that uh, the umpire needed to be in charge and provide order in every game. He was a former player, and he understood that. So the umpire could uh, maintain the le- legitimacy of the new league if he um, knew the rules, and, and then he could also command respect. That's what he wanted out of his umpires. There were mixed feelings among the owners about whether um, the umpire should be white or black. In 1920, most games had only two umpires rather than four, like we might see today in some kind of professional type of game. And this made the role of the umpires even harder and more important. So it was not until 1923 that the uh, Negro National League owners voted to hire the first all-black crew for the league. So that was three years into their existence. Prior to that, uh, umpires were generally provided by the home team and were often white. One of the earliest recorded stories of a black umpire uh, involves Jacob Francis, who was chosen to represent Syracuse as one of the official umpires in the newly formed New York State League. In the census records, back from like 1870 and 1880, Francis is listed as mulatto. He umpired at um, Stars Park throughout uh, 1885 as one member of a three-man crew, becoming the first black umpire for an all-white league. In addition to umpiring, Francis managed the Syracuse Pastimes, which is a local black team. And Francis uh, first appeared in the 1870 census in Syracuse with his wife Sarah having come from Virginia. Fans generally supported Francis and um, even booed another umpire when he subbed for him. Um, once news, one news reporter said that Francis is one of the most popular men that ever officiated as an umpire before a Syracuse audience. Um, an instance cannot be recalled where there was an, a, any trouble or delay in a game in which Mr. Francis officiated. He possesses an excellent judgment, is quick on his feet, and gives his decisions promptly. I guess timing wasn't such an important thing then, huh? Uh, 1909 Seattle article talked about Pete Johnson, a black umpire in the Jacksonville area during the late 19th century. Johnson appeared to be a fan favorite and well-respected for his calls. Reporting on one game, a writer commented that all the hotel guests were desirous of seeing Pete Johnson umpire as they were to witness the game itself. That's crazy, huh? He had a unique way of calling the game uh, deciding a runner who was out on the base was uh, canceled. He, he wasn't out, he was canceled. Okay. When a runner refused to leave the field after Johnson called him out, Johnson simply said the player would be a ghost runner. <laughs> uh, so Francis and Johnson were rarities. Most games involving black teams always had white umpires before 1923. That was uh, partly due to the lack of trained black umpires. But more importantly, most teams were owned by white men. They had control of the resources and therefore black men did not get the chance to umpire. Given the nature of race relations in the 1900s and 1910s, uh, the idea that decisions by whites would be more accepted than those by blacks was not a stretch and provided an additional rationale for the owners to justify using white umpires. So as early as 1910, the question of umpires for a proposed all-black league was being discussed. When um, uh, Beauregard Mosley from Chicago 
wrote about his proposed league, he noted many decisions that had to be made. But one he seemed to be most animated about was um, paid umpires. He said the umpire should be, receive $5 a game and be paid by the home team. Mosley did not comment on whether the umpires would be race umps or white arbiters, as he said. But his proposed uh, proposal matched the pattern most often used by later leagues with umpires provided by the home team. That added an extra burden to the men in black who had to work harder to prove their impartiality. I mean, if you're hired by the home team, that's the way it goes, right? Uh, Rube Foster did use black umpires for exhibition and benefit games. In 1910, he hired uh, boxer Jack Johnson and vaudeville performer S.H. Dudley to work a benefit for um, Provident Hospital, a black-owned institution. The use of such stars gave the black community figures to look up to as role models. And Foster himself umpired a benefit game in 1913. But for regular Chicago American Giants contest, he used white umpires. Um, with the creation of the Negro National League in 1920, Foster recognized the importance of umpires, writing in the 1921 column, Future of Race Umps Depends on Men of Today. He used this column to explain why the new league would be using white umpires rather than black. Foster's basic explanation was simply that black men lacked knowledge of the rules. Opportunities were just not present, but the Negro National League was not a charity. It was a business, so he was going to use who he thought was best. Since there were um, no professional schools for black umpires you know, to even get into because of segregation, many of the best African-American umps were former players who relied on their knowledge of the game from personal experience. And this happened with a lot of white umpires as well, but they had opportunities for umpire schools, right? For example, uh, Newark Eagles first baseman outfielder uh, Mule Suttles umpired after he, re he retired in the late 1940s. Uh, pitcher Billy Donaldson turned to umpiring in the 1920s and 30s, while second baseman Mo Harris umpired from the 1930s to the 1940s after his career with the Homestead Grays, very famous um, you know, Negro League team, um, had ended. Local Cleveland sports star Harry Walker umpired for the Cleveland Bears in 1939 to try to help support black baseball in his community. Um, Cincinnati native Percy Reed played second base for a local athletic club and the Lincoln Giants. He started umpiring in 1929, and from 1935 to 1947, he called every Sunday game played by black teams in Cincinnati. Reed worked as part of a local two-umpire team with Harry Ward, known locally and in the newspapers as Wu-Fang. Reed learned uh, his trade from Bill Carpenter, who was an umpire in the International League. Uh, Hurley uh, McNair, a pitcher and outfielder for a number of Negro League clubs, umpired after he retired as a player in 1937. He traveled for league games until his death in December 1948. The um, Baltimore Black Sox employed black umpires as early as 1917 when Charles Cromwell was hired by owner uh, Charles Spaden. Cromwell umpired in the Negro Leagues through the 1947 season. In uh, 1923, Rube Foster tried to hire Cromwell as part of a new team of African-American umpires for the Negro National League. 
Foster wanted the best umpires, and he felt that white umpires had provided that in the first years of the league. With the creation of the Eastern Colored League in 1923, Foster felt the time was right to find the best black umpires he could. His first hire was Billy Donaldson from the Pacific Coast League, and then he went after Cromwell. Cromwell turned Foster down to stay with the Black Sox after Speeden hired Henry Spike Spencer from Washington, D.C. to join him as the team's umpires for you know all of their home games. Speeden proved he wanted the Black Sox to succeed by spending money on the team, and so Cromwell opted to stay an umpire at the Maryland Baseball Park. By 1924, Speeden vowed to use all black umpires for Black Sox games, a move some said is bound to meet with favor. Cromwell's choice did not turn out to be the best when the ECL decided in 1925 that teams should not hire their own umpires, as had been the practice. This put Cromwell and Spencer out of work, and Cromwell came Back in 1926, when the ECL gave back the hiring of umpires to the teams. In 1927, when George Rossiter took over operations for the Black Sox, he fired Cromwell and Spencer. Rossiter felt that black umpires were not yet competent and that he would use white umpires until they were. Cromwell found work in a minor black league in the South before returning to umpire for the Baltimore Elite Giants through 1947. Cromwell's career was like that of so many of the other black umpires who always had to fight to prove they were as worthy as white umpires. When the Negro National League was uh, being formed, Rube Foster talked with the press about a variety of subjects vital to the league's success. One of the topics was umpires, who Foster stated needed to be totally in charge. So their decision would be final and they needed to be supported by the league. Foster wanted utmost good order on the ball field. He saw the league as an investment, uh, a business venture, and so the right umpires would be essential to the success of the league. Foster commented, I think an ump should be pacific, um, pacific but firm, positive but polite, quick but unshoddy, Strict but reasonable. On the question of the use of white versus black umpires, Foster wanted to use African-American men, but believed that there were not enough available and that, um, that anyway, many people would accept the decisions of white umpires more readily. Reporter Charles Marshall thought colored umpires should be given a chance, but agreed with Foster about white umpires. He wrote, of course, we know that some players, as well as some managers and fans alike, feel that the white umpire's decision carries more weight and generally comes closer to the right decision than the colored official. In most cases, just because he is white. That's the society they were living in, right? With the creation of the uh, Eastern Colored League in 1923, the league's continued serious discussions deciding to hire all black umpires for the NNL. Reporter Frank Young began a campaign to hire black umpires in 1922. He called for training of black men and at the same time criticized the mistakes of white umpires. He tried to counter Foster's concern that black umpires would be swayed by the cheering of black fans rather than engage in good decision making. Young used his column to highlight the work of men like Jameson in Baltimore and Donaldson in California to show that there were African-American men capable of umpiring for the league. 
Kansas City was the first of the cities to use two black umpires, Billy Donaldson and Burt Golston. Foster hired six black umpires for the league, with two-man crews responsible for uh, different cities. Leon Augustine and Lucian Snare worked around the Milwaukee area, while Cesar Jameson and William Embry worked the Indianapolis region. When Foster failed to hire uh, Charlie Cromwell, he had to look harder for qualified men. Tom Johnson was the last of the original hires, being used as a rotating umpire. So finding umpires with the necessary uh, necessary qualifications and abilities to control the game and the situations that could arise proved difficult from the beginning to the demise of the Negro Leagues. While owners like Foster and Kansas City's J.L. Wilkinson favored all race crews, they also knew having qualified umpires was even more important. Foster would not even use black umpires for Chicago American Giants games, preferring to pay white umpires while black umpires sat idle. By the end of the 1925 season, Foster released the black umpires who had been hired by the league and went back to the practice of the home team providing the umpires. At the end of the season, the other owners hired black, um, back four of the six men who had been let go. These men continued to work for the league through the 1927 season without significant incident. So after Foster left the Negro National League in 1926, black umpires still had a difficult time being hired. However, when the short-lived American Negro League was created in 1929, it hired black umpires led by former players um, like uh, Bill Gatewood, Judy Gaines, and former umpire Frank Forbes. Because of the Great Depression... Pressure on the owners increased to give black men a chance. Unfortunately, the um, American Negro League collapsed after the 1929 season, ending one of the most um, the best opportunities for black umpires to be hired. Uh, Chicago Defender reporter Al Monroe stated in more than one column that black umpires needed to take better control of the game. They need to be less tentative and show control if they want respect. Of course, we all know that goes with whatever race you might be if you're umpiring a baseball game, right? Without control, they would never find regular employment. So umpires always had a tough time with players and fans who did not know, did not want to listen. But Negro League umpires often had a tougher time without much league support. Burt Goldston believed that the umpires always worked with the fear that they would be attacked and the league would not support them. He stated, several of the teams of the Negro National League are still under the impression that they shouldn't take orders from the colored umpires. Several of them are threatening to jump uh, on the umpires, you know, beat them up and stuff. That's not very cool. In 1934, um, Negro National League Commissioner Rolla Wilson tried to improve the situation by imposing fines and suspensions. One particular target was Judd Wilson who had a temper and a reputation for attacking umpires. Wilson's $10 fine was not much of a deterrent. By 1936, things had gotten so bad that $25 became the fine with a 10-day suspension for assaulting an umpire. Um, New league secretary uh, John Clark created a schedule for the three league umpires, Ray Moe Harris, John Craig, and Pete Kleeg. The other umpires would still be chosen by the home teams, which encouraged, you know, changes of favoritism and charges of favoritism. 
Um, unfortunately for the umpires, without strong support from league officials, they were pretty much on their own. Longtime umpire Virgil Boulette stated, if the club owners would order their managers and players to abide by the umpires' rulings, much of this trouble would be avoided. Another veteran umpire, Frank Forbes, was attacked on June 5, 1937 by New York Black Yankees players, and just a few games later he got into an altercation with the Newark manager Tex Burnett. A month later, Forbes and fellow umpire Jasper Jap Washington were attacked in their dressing room by Baltimore elite giant players. Washington uh, resigned when nothing happened to the players involved. League honchos, Gus Greenlee and Composey, finally responded with tougher policies, but the enforcement uh, was lax, depending on how a team's players were affected. For example, when umpire James Crump forfeited a game, manager George Scales attacked him, and the league let Crump go without a hearing at all. The lack of official support made an already hard job even more difficult for umpires who earned no real respect for just doing their job. A reporter for the Kansas City Whip stated that the weakest link in a game is found in the setup of umpires, which is limited to three. He included a variety of criticisms from around the league about the umpires not being harsh enough in their actions toward players who uh, broke the rules. In 1944, uh, Dan Burley wrote about the abuse umpires took for little pay. He... um, Reprinted a letter he received from Fred McCary, a longtime umpire in the Negro National League. McCary was upset at the lack of attention paid to umpires. For example, he worked in every East-West game from 1938 through 1944, and all the umpires got for each game was ten dollars in expenses. When McCary was asked for more, when he asked for more money, the owners told him the umpire was not important for the game. Not all agreed with that assessment. I'm sure most of you wouldn't either, right? As there were Um, owners and players who treated umpires uh, respectfully. By the 1940s, some were also concerned about improving the respect because they feared the violence on and off the field might hurt the um, increasing push for integration. In 1945, umpire Jimmy Thompson had his nose broken by player um, Piper Davis and pursued legal action against him since the league did nothing, and Thompson won his case. Davis only paid $230 in court costs. Later, President J.B. Martin added a league fine of $250 and indefinite suspension when the true story of the fight came out. Sometimes things got so bad that the police had to be called in to restore order. While police help was necessary and did not help the umpires exercise true authority, um, but, um, you know, sadly it happened with both white and black umpires as evidenced by Goose Curry's harassing white umpire Pete Stunts until the police escorted Curry off the field. The Chicago Cubs finally uh, raised the rent on Wrigley Field to keep black teams from using it if they could not control their players. Even the minor Negro Leagues had uh, regular discussions about umpires and their roles. The Texas-Oklahoma-Louisiana League decided in 1929 to hire four umpires who were would be paid by the league. The league officials hoped this would give the umpires more authority and lessen incidents on the field. The Florida State Negro League in 1949 followed the pattern of having the home teams provide the umpires. But at the winter meetings before the 1950 season, 
Discussions about the umpire's situation dominated the talks. The league decided to hire two umpires, William Washington and Archie Colbert, and have the balls and strikes umpire travel around the league. At the same time, league president Skipper Holbert let two other umpires, Gus Daniels and Charles Merritt, go for inefficiency and misconduct. At the um, annual East-West Classic, kind of their all-star game, the league often used both Negro League and white minor league umpires for the contest. Having a bigger pool to draw from allowed the Classic to have four umpires, which often meant better control and legitimacy for the game. The only real difference in rules for the minor league umpires was the fact that the spitball was legal uh, in the Negro Leagues. It wasn't outlawed like it was in um, you know 1920 or so for um, the major leagues. The best-known black umpire from the Negro Leagues is Bob Motley, who in 2016 was the last living umpire from the leagues. Motley was born in um, Alabama in 1923, the sixth of eight children born to parents who were sharecroppers. Motley's father died when he was four, making it even tougher on the family to survive. Uh, Motley served in the U.S. Marine Corps during World War II, earning a Purple Heart for a wound. While serving in the Marines, Motley umpired a few pickup games and discovered a career that would take off after the war. He umpired for over 25 years in the Negro Leagues and white minors. Umpiring from 1949 to 1956 in the Negro Leagues, Miley got to see some of the best players of the day and even umpired the 1953 and 54 East-West Classics. Miley's, uh, Miley commented on umpiring, An umpire has got to have guts and force right. An umpire can count on being no one's friend, at least while on the diamond. Motley attended the um, Al Summers Umpire School twice and graduated at the top of the class each time. His high scores did not help in the face of segregation. He never umpired above the Pacific Coast League, WAAA. Motley recognized that umpires were not treated well by anyone. For example, he commented, It was pretty common in the Negro Leagues that if the catcher didn't like the way an umpire was calling balls and strikes, he would purposely let a pitch go by and let it smack the umpire right in the face mask. That happened to me at least a half a dozen times. After he called um, Hank Bayless out on strikes and threw him out of the game, Bayless came after Motley with a butcher's knife on the bus home. The fans were even worse than the players in their continual comments, Motley said. Um, He said that most fans had a, a favorite chant, Kill the umpire, kill the umpire. You heard the chant so often you just expected it. Fans love to blame the umpire when their team lost. Same way now, right? While Motley had received some attention in his later years, and Emmett Ashford is known because he was the first African-American umpire in the majors, Julian uh, Jilks never really got a shot. Jilks umpired for four years in the Pacific Coast League, but never got a call to the majors. Before umpiring in the minors, Jilks was discovered by Alex Pompez when he came to New Orleans with his barnstorming Negro League team. Pompez was so impressed with Jilks that he hired him to travel with his club in the mid-1950s. By 1956, Jilks got his first chance in the white professional leagues and began his climb to AAA. Jilks umpired until the assassination of um, Martin Luther King Jr., and then he stopped, fearing he or his family might become targets. 
Uh, in 2008, Jokes was invited as a guest to the Major League Draft, where teams symbolically selected a former player from the Negro Leagues. So, you know, throughout the history of black baseball and the Negro Leagues, the issue of who would act as an umpire for their games was always a concern. While Rube Foster and other owners might have favored its principal, hiring black men as umpires, they were businessmen first and needed to put the best product on the field. This led to the decision to hire white umpires most of the time based on the beliefs that they knew the rules better and could control the behavior of the players and the fans. With that said, there were still many fine black umpires from this time, uh, from Jacob Francis to Julian Jilks. And sadly, good umpires really get noticed and their stories are not told, making it hard to track them down and give them credit for their contributions. Fortunately, um, many things um, in umpiring have improved and and race relations and and umpiring has improved and there are many umpires uh, from different nationalities and and skin tones out there that do a fine job and um, Umpires seem to be, you know, judged now based on their ability and, and not the color of their skin, which, which is a good thing for everybody. Well, that's what we've got this week. Another episode done. Another episode without any umpiring uh, for me to talk about as far as games. Hopefully that will change soon. Uh, I know that my um, umpire spotlight was on the lengthy side, but I thought there's some interesting things there and and some just do that uh, Negro League umpires um, you know need to get. So um, you know I did a little research on that and came up with a few things and hopefully uh, um, makes you think about um, our situations that we have nowadays that. Uh, you know, umpires of all colors have gone through to to make things better for us. I mean, we know it's not a perfect situation, but um, those that came before us went through some some turmoil to make things better for those that came after, getting better wages, better conditions, better treatment, whether you're a white umpire, black umpire, uh, Hispanic umpire, whatever you might be, all right? So we've got to pay tribute to those people and know a little bit about it and uh, do our part to move things forward as well, um, especially in these challenging times that we're in right now. We've got to kind of band together and, and try to make things the best for all officials. But, you know, of course, I'm talking about umpires, but all officials around the country and the world. So until next week, you guys hang in there and keep calling strikes. <laughs>